This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia. Today we continue our series with Daryl Hart teaching about J. Gresham Machen. Today's lesson is titled, Machen and the Crisis of Western Civilization. Morning. This is uh, week three of um, this series of lessons on J. Gresham Machen, and um, theme. If you have not been here, is Machen the fighter, and um, we're entering now into part of the the uh, course where. Um, thanks. we're going to be looking at what Machen actually fought. Um, and this is kind of a big big one today, um, where he, he may be fighting Western civilization. Um, so just to back up a little bit and um, see where we left off last week when we talked about Machen's family background, educational background, church background, and we left him basically uh, in 1914 where he had um, come through some of his, his doubts as a young man and um, figured out what his calling was and he went ahead and, and was ordained at Prince, uh, in the Presbyterian Church um, and became an assistant professor of New Testament at Princeton in 1914. Um, and uh, I suggested uh, that Machen was not necessarily comfortable with the life of the academy or the uh, life of, or, of a minister because his own family background and family associations were with people who were active in the world, his father being an attorney, his, uh, his two grandfathers engaged in politics and law, his brother, uh, older brother, engaged in law as well. Um, and, and Machen, I think, had a sense that what he was doing did not compare with what they did. And these were people who were quite learned themselves and collected all sorts of ancient books. His father had a great collection of, uh, of ancient books, um, rare books, some of which wound up in the library at Westminster, um, especially a New Testament uh, translation uh, by Erasmus. Um, uh, so... Anyway, these were very learned people, and Machen thought his efforts were sort of puny compared to theirs. And so that's, so he's finally maybe resolved all this by 1914, and he's going to be, be a professor at Princeton. Uh, well, funny thing happened in 1914 as well. There was the beginning of World War I. Of course, the United States doesn't enter that war, doesn't become involved in it until... 1917, um, but Machen um, seems to be dissatisfied with the life of scholarship and uh, seems to be spinning his wheels a little bit even then still, perhaps looking for the act of life. And so he decides that he wants to serve in the war effort. Um, and uh, I this, this, this book is the... Uh, biography of Machen, written by Ned Stonehouse, Stonehouse, who was a longtime member of this congregation, and uh, we have a plaque that's still honoring Stonehouse, which we still have yet to reinstall. Um, 
used to be on the pulpit here. Um, and this, this edition of the biography is, is published by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church Committee for the Historian, so you know it must be good. And in fact, it is better than the original because it has a better index, in part, uh, thanks to the efforts of the historian, John Meather, who, is, um, who indexes a lot of books. Um, so let, let me just give you a couple of examples of Machen's thoughts about that war and the reason for pointing this out is that Stonehouse, in a, in a manner of older biographies, reprinted a lot of Machen's correspondence. Um, and so if you, want a, if you want a flavor for the sort of things that Machen wrote about to his, his parents when he wrote letters or to his brother, you can see some of it here. Um, so this is Machen's um, evaluation of the struggle between Great Britain and Germany as it was emerging in, in World War one, when the Germans were in front of Paris, I was wild against them, but now I have withdrawn my support from the Allies. No doubt the Germans placed themselves technically in the wrong in this war, but the more I reflect, the more I see their side. They are military, but probably all of us would be military if we had the countless barbarian hordes of Russia within easy striking distance of us. The alliance of Great Britain with Russia and Japan seems to me still an unholy thing, an unscrupulous effort to crush the life of a progressive commercial rival. Gradually, a condition has so begotten, had to be gotten, excuse me, together against Germany, and the purpose of it was too plain, an alleged war in the interest of democracy, the chief result of which will be to place a splendid people at the mercy of Russia, does not appeal to me. On the whole, while a few weeks ago I, I, I confessed that I joined Andy in wishing for a few months of Napoleon, now my wish is for about seven years of Frederick the Great. So he's, he's coming more and more around to Germany. This talk about British democracy, he goes on, arouses my ire in as much as anything. Great Britain seems to me the least democratic of all the civilized nations of the world. With a land system that makes great masses of the people practically serfs, and a miserable social system that is social system that is more tyrannical in the really important emotional side of life than all the political oppression that ever was practiced. And then if there is such a thing as British democracy, it has no place for any rival on the face of the earth. The British attitude towards German just effort at this at a place in ocean trade seems to me one of the great underlying causes of the war. And unless that spirit can be overcome, there never, never will be a permanent peace. I'm afraid that I have become rather a confirmed partisan of the underdog in the present struggle. For France, I must say, I have full sympathy. This is interesting that Machen, you may think that his name, uh, Machen, uh, especially he, he, he eventually achieved the nickname Dasi, Das Machen, which I think was a uh, maid chen in German made something something like the maid, so he kind of had this nickname of being Dasi, and so people may have thought that he had a German name, but his name was actually English. Machen is an English name, and his his sentiments are clearly with Germany, partly because he had spent time in Germany, had friends in Germany, um, but his 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 assessment of England is actually kind of interesting as well. There weren't many Americans who thought about England quite that way, which is part of the reason why Woodrow Wilson entered the war the way he did. But so Machen has a pretty interesting take on the world, and he was even different from his family members. Most of his family members were very much on the side of England against Germany. But again, Machen's 
time in Germany would have um, given him a different, different account of that. But I also think his, per- his perceptions about British society and British colonialism were, um, had a measure of plausibility. Um, another reason, though, uh, another reflection he had on the war before uh, becoming involved in it was on the matter of conscription. Woodrow Wilson, or the federal government, instituted a policy of drafting people into the service, and Machen wrote a letter to one of his congressmen very much opposed to this. Machen was a libertarian. We'll talk more about his politics at, at another point. But he believed that this uh, effort to um, in, to draft soldiers into the military uh, was going to change America and change American notions of liberty. Um, and he was very much opposed to be Mer- America becoming this military, militarized state, um, the way European nations were. Um, and it, again, I, whether Machen knew it or not, he was quite perceptive about the ways in which war would change um, America uh, and, and really consolidate power in the federal government and in Washington, uh, the Civil War had done that, but also especially two world wars um, substantially changed American society and government, you could argue. And so Machen was very much opposed to those developments. Um, And I think would have preferred that America actually stay out of the war entirely, uh, which might have been better, all things considered, because maybe there could have been some other outcome than a... uh, defeated and also shamed Germany, which would then retaliate 20 years later. Um, But that's another matter. So anyway, those are some concerns that Machen had about the war. Um, But So he wanted to serve in it, though, not necessarily because he was in favor of the war, but because he wanted some outlet for this active life that he thought he needed to pursue, it seems to me. And so there there were a couple of options. One, he could be a chaplain. Military service was just right out because he was ordained. He believed that a minister should not ever bear arms. Um, and now, he, of course, he could somewhat say that he was a soldier and not a minister when entering in, into military service, but he thought that was illegitimate. Another place that he could have served would have been a, as a chaplain, but as a chaplain, he would have been an officer. And he believed that there was too much distance between him and the rank and file soldiers. So he didn't think that chaplaincy was a very good uh, place for him to serve. And so he came up with serving in the YMCA as a secretary for the YMCA. He wasn't very much in favor of the YMCA. If you know much about the YMCA, the, the YMCA was one of the um, institutions of a kind of liberal Protestantism that developed in the late 19th century. Um, but it, it was very active originally in sort of providing a wholesome outlet in cities for single men who were coming to the cities from farms to work in office work in factories or whatever, more professional men than, than working blue-collar men. And um, these would be places that would, again, sort of have libraries and, and some facilities there for wholesome Christian uh, recreation for these men. And over time, it, it developed uh, a lot of other things, and today we know it largely as kind of recreation centers, I mean, places where you could just... Go, go to get fit. But, so Machen wasn't really in favor of the YMCA, but it seemed like the best possible way for him to serve. And so he went to France and served on the front in France as a, as a secretary for the YMCA. And he, over the course of his endeavors there, he sold cigarettes and mixed hot chocolate for the troops and tried to have a, a, an informal Christian presence there among the soldiers. Um, and I have... Um, 
here another handout, which again has some of the um, the letters that are that Stonehouse republished um, in this uh, biography, just to give you a flavor of. Um, what Machen actually saw. Um, while serving in France, he was right up against the battle uh, and had to, had to leave his, his um, various places of, of work because of the Germans uh, coming through France. So he saw a lot of destruction um, and uh, bloodshed and... Um, I think this is important for Machen's own assessment of Western civilization. Um, Let me call your attention to uh, pages 228 and 229. Um, This is the bottom of 228, the first full paragraph. He's talking about having just, um, the Germans having uh, invaded this territory in France and bombing them, bombing the area. Um, And so Machen, I'm just going to read it paragraph or so here just to give you a little flavor of his experience. The first mile and a half we walked, when we got up in the plateau back of our carrier, the appearance of things was not encouraging. Great clouds of smoke were rising here and there in the rear, and all the reports that we could get indicated that the Boches had advanced in such a way as to risk cutting us off. Loaded down with the blankets and handbags of my companions, we were glad when we reached the headquarters of the Dames Anglaises, however you say it, who ran a concern somewhat like a foyer de soldat in a neighboring village. There, through the extreme kindness of the commandant, who was attending to the moving of the Dames Anglaises, we were able to load our belongings on a wagon, at least the belongings of my comrades, since I had none. On the road, the rattle of the German aviators' machine guns was not pleasant. Passing troops on a road are pretty much at the mercy of an airplane. But after something like a, like a four- or five-mile trip, we got, a little, got to a little town where there was a railroad station of a branch line. We just caught the last train that was to be run. It was filled with women and children leaving their homes and trying to carry some of their personal effects. Mighty pathetic that train was, I can tell you. But you, but you from personal experience, know what such scenes are like. After a trip of 10 or 15 miles, we reached the station on a main line Since we had all afternoon, or rather most of the whole day, to wait for the Paris train, I seized the opportunity of inquiring at the foyer de soldat of the town about the direction regional. I was informed that it was established at a small city not very far from Paris, so instead of going at once to Paris, I decided to get off at the city in question and report to the regional directors. Arriving at nearly midnight, I was fortunate enough to get a room at a hotel. You may well imagine that after two such nights, as I had spent, a bed looked mighty good to me. Um, just down uh, when he gets to Paris at the bottom of 229, I have been, the last full paragraph, I have been directed to wait here in Paris till tomorrow when instructions may be given to me. Naturally, clothes are my, my first concern. He's lost everything, having to leave it behind where he was at the, at the front. Uh, the prices are something terrific. For instance, I paid 185 francs plus a war tax for a pair of high boots. But I should not mind if I could only get 
the things that I desire. French underwear is cut in the queerest way imaginable, and the American variety cannot be found. But this morning I am at least fairly clean. I even had a bath. Still, I just, I'm just about the toughest-looking person in Paris. How other foyer directors manage to look as though they had just come out of a bandbox when in reality they have been sleeping in a carrier is beyond my comprehension. I must think about my purchases since, of course, tomorrow I may get the order to leave town at once. Um, and then on the other page, the other side that I've given you, um, just a couple of uh, excerpts here, again, of Machen's experience. Um, about uh, on the left-hand side, 234, about halfway down, there's a, um, well, three, two-thirds of the way down, there's a sentence that begins, by the way, along with the hatred and bitterness incidental to the war, there are some examples of the other thing, which, like fair lilies in swampy ground, are the more beautiful because of the constant the contrast with the unlikely soil in which they grow. Thus, at one of the dressing stations near the front, I saw an American wounded soldier deliberately take off his overcoat and give it to a wounded German who was suffering a lot worse than he. When one reflects what that little act meant, the long, cold hours of rain and damp on the long way to the rear and the interminable waits, it becomes clear that magnanimity has not altogether perished from the earth. Um, and then at the top of 235, the first full paragraph. One day, I walked out with some other secretaries toward the front. On the way, we passed what had recently been no man's land and the German lines behind it. Right here, all attempt at description would be vain. It was a scene of desolation so abominable, so unlike anything that could have been expected on our fair earth, that neither words nor even photographs could bring any realization of it. For miles, the front had been reduced to a few straggling stumps. I have seen burnt and ruined forests before, but the effects of shell fire are different. There was something indescribably sinister about that scene of ruin. Everywhere, there were enormous craters caused by big shells at places running into one another. Along the road, in one or two places, the unburied dead were lying, enough to indicate the horrors which were probably concealed by that ghastly desert desert on the other side. Um, and he also talks here about seeing refugees struggling to leave towns, leave their, leave their homes, but trying to take as much as they could. It's really quite a, um, I think, a very important experience for Machen to see what he did there in the war. And um, this leads to the point then about the disillusionment that many American intellectuals experienced during World War I. Uh, probably the, the, the biggest among them um, was someone like uh, Ernest Hemingway, who in his novel A Farewell to Arms, written in, in 1929, wrote, I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrificed, abstract words such as glory, honor, courage, or hallow were obscene beside the concrete names of villages, the numbers of numbers of roads, the names of rivers, the numbers of regiments, and the dates. This is somebody reflecting about what the war experience had done to those ideals, supposedly, for which the war had been fought. And again, according to Woodrow Wilson, this was the great war for democracy. Um, and so after seeing the carnage, and especially thinking that this, these were the civilized nations of the world that were fighting in this way, um, 
And part of the reason for, for emphasizing the civilized character of these European nations is that that was part of the justification for European colonization of other parts of the world. The Europeans were civilized, everyone else was barbarian. But by going and colonizing these other places, South America, North America, Africa, etc., we could bring civilization to those places. Um, very much on the minds of the British Empire as it sent out its, its forces. Um, but the war sort of uh, gutted that idea of the idealism associated with European civilization and suggested that, that Europeans were just as barbaric as everyone else. Um, and so for people like Hemingway, they became very disillusioned. Um, and there was a so-called lost generation of American intellectuals after World War I seeing what had happened. Um, and some of them, like Hemingway, had actually served in the ambulance corps in, in, during the war and, and seen the sort of carnage that Machen also witnessed. Um, and, I, and I think it's possible then to see in Machen a kind of shift in his understanding of Western civilization and culture. So I have a series of quotations, some of which didn't quite get on, this, the end of the words didn't quite get onto the... Um, the pages, but I have a series of quotations running from 1912 all the way down to 1933, uh, which they may be somewhat selective, but it does seem to me that everything after World War I suggests a different assessment by Machen of civilization, especially regarding civilization and Christianity, which raises the question about Christ and culture, the relationship between Christianity and culture. So, in 1912, Machen actually wrote this essay called Christianity and Culture. And this is a, this is a passage, uh, or this is an essay that has many passages often cited um, from Machen of a more transformational, Kuyperian, reform world and life view bent. So here are a couple uh, of paragraphs. Instead of destroying the arts and sciences or being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with all the enthusiasm of the veriest humanist but at the same time consecrate them to the service of our God. Instead of stifling the pleasures afforded by the acquisition of knowledge or by the appreciation of what is beautiful, let us accept these pleasures as the gifts of a heavenly Father. Instead of obliterating the distinction between the kingdom and the world, or on the other hand, withdrawing from the world into a sort of modernized intellectual monasticism, let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically, to make the world subject to God. It's an interesting phrase there, to make the world subject to God. The kingdom must be advanced not merely extensively, but also intensively. The church must seek to conquer not merely every man for Christ, but also the whole of man. We are accustomed to encourage ourselves in our discouragements by the thought of the time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. No less inspiring is the other aspect of that same consummation. That will also be a time when doubts have disappeared, when every contradiction has been removed, when all of science converges to one great conviction, when all of art is devoted to one great end. Sorry, that should, be no, should not be no great end. <clears throat> when all of human thinking is permeated by the refining and nobling influence of Jesus, when every thought has been brought into subjection to the obedience of Christ. Again, seeing that idea of subjection. And the idea, well, I'll, I'll say, hope to say, have time to say more about the relationship between Christ and culture, but this really does seem to be compatible with 
a Kuyperian uh, view as well as the way that H. Richard Niebuhr in his classic book, Christ and Culture, would, would have described the Calvinist outlook on culture. But it's interesting then to see the way Machen may be shifting away from this after the war. Um, so in 1919, he, writes this, uh, he gives this chapel address called The Church in the War. And he writes, or says, the roots of modern self-satisfaction lie far deeper than the war. During the past century, a profound spiritual change has been produced in the whole thought and life of the world. No less a change that the substitution of paganism for Christian as the dominant principle of life. We are not here using paganism as a term of reproach. Ancient Greece was pagan, but it was glorious. What we mean by paganism is a view of life which finds its ideal simply in a healthy and harmonious and joyous development of existing human faculties. Such an ideal is the exact opposite, sorry, that should be, just is the exact opposite of Christianity, which is the religion of the broken heart. We would not be misunderstood. In saying that Christianity is the religion of the broken heart, we do not mean that Christianity ends in the broken heart. We do not mean that the characteristic Christian attitude is a continual beating of the breast and a continual crying of woe is me. On the contrary, the Christian should not be always laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Sin is dealt with once for all, and then a new and joyous life follow. Should be, I think follows. <clears throat> there is thus in a Christian, Christianity a higher humanism. The trouble with the humanism of ancient Greece, as with the humanism of modern times, lay not in the superstructure, which was glorious, but in the foundation, which is rotten. Sin was never really dealt with and removed. There was always something to cover up. In the higher Christian humanism, there is nothing to cover up. The guilt has been removed once for all by God, and the Christian may now proceed without fear to develop every faculty which God has given him. Now, it seems to me that Machen is beginning to emphasize more the, the notion of a, a broken heart in Christianity. That, granted, he says it doesn't end with a broken heart, it be, but it does clearly begin with a broken heart. And it, again, it seems to resonate in my read of, of, of Machen with his profound experience during World War I and seeing that the brokenness of humanity, especially of civilized humanity, would make you think much more in terms of us understanding Christianity, first of all, as the religion of a broken heart that leads to something else. Um, I'll skip over Christian liberalism because I'll come back to, to that uh, later in the, in, the, in the class, God willing. But let's look at 1929, Westminster Theological Seminary, its purpose and plan. This is just after Princeton has been reorganized and uh, Machen is quite distressed about losing Princeton Seminary to the cause of Reformed Orthodoxy. And he writes this at, toward the very end of this address at the commencement of Westminster he says, at first it might seem a great calamity and sad are the hearts of those Christian men and women throughout the world who love the gospel that old Princeton proclaimed. We cannot fully understand the ways of God in permitting so great a wrong. Yet good may come even out of, out of a thing so evil as that. Perhaps the evangelical people in the Presbyterian church were too contented, too confident in material resources. Perhaps God has taken away worldly props in order that we may rely fully on him. Um, again, this, a hint there of perhaps depending too much on culture, too much on 
the trappings of the civilized world and, and an understanding of education. And perhaps God's people have become too contented, and that's part of the reason why Westminster, uh, why Princeton lost um, its way. Uh, and then in 31, uh, 1931, Machen gives this chapel address at Westminster and says this to those who would be grad- soon graduating to become ministers of the gospel. Do you think that this is a happy, sorry for the typos, or a blessed age? Oh, no, my friends. Amid all the noise and shouting and power and machinery, there are hungry hearts, hearts thirsting for the living water, hearts hungry for the bread that is bread indeed. That hunger you alone can still. You can do so not by any riches of your own, but as humble ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderfully rich you are, my brethren, rich with riches greater by far than all the wealth and power of this world, rich with the inexhaustible riches of God's word. Remember this at least. The things in which the world is now interested are the things that are seen. But the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. You, as ministers of Christ, are called to do with the unseen things. You are stewards of the mysteries of God. You alone can lead men by the proclamation of God's word. Out of the crash and jazz and noise and rattle and smoke of this weary age into green pastures and beside still waters, you alone as ministers of reconciliation can give what the world with all its boasting and pride can never give, the infinite sweetness of the communion of the redeemed soul with the living God. Interesting, that, that stream of images there, jazz and noise and rattle and smoke. He saw a lot of rattle and smoke and noise at the front. He wasn't a big fan of jazz either, so he puts those all together. But again, this, this, this contrast now between the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal, and ministers minister these unseen things. And that's the only thing that can satisfy um, whether he would have said at this point something about the glories of pagan Greece, I don't know. Um, but it does seem, again, that Machen, because of his experience both with, uh, in World War I, but then also when, in the wars of the Presbyterian Church that we'll come to in weeks ahead, God willing, uh, is beginning to have a very different assessment of um, culture and the church, church's engagement with culture. And then finally, this last quotation here from an essay he wrote called Mountains and Why We Love Them. This is about a trip, a hike uh, that he took up, up Mount Blanc at the age of roughly 52 um, when he admitted that he was in very bad shape. Um, but he, he recounts this, this, uh, this, this hike, uh, this climb, and he, then he says this, um, you are standing there not in any ordinary country, but in the very midst of Europe, looking out from its very center. Germany just beyond where you can see to the northeast, Italy to the south, France beyond those snows of Mont Blanc. There in that glorious round spread out before you, that land of Europe, humanity has put forth its best. There it has struggled, there it has fallen, there it has looked upward to God. The history of the race seems to press before you, pass before you in an instant of time, concentrated in the fairest of all the lands of the earth. You think of the great men whose memories you love, the men who have struggled there in those countries below you, who have struggled for light and freedom, struggled for beauty, struggled above all for God's word, and you think of the present and its decadence and its slavery, and you desire to weep. It is a pathetic thing to contemplate the history of mankind. I cannot for the life of me see how any man, even with the slightest knowledge of history, can help recognizing the fact that we are living at a time of sad decadence, 
decadence only thinly disguised by the material achievements of our age, which are already beginning to pall on us like a new toy. Like a new toy. Um, so again, it seems to me Machen is, maybe it's what happens to all old men. They, they, they are not as, as optimistic as they were in youth. And maybe you can contrast what he says in 1912 and what he says in 1933 as simply the function of getting old. Um, but I also think it has to do with a different assessment of, of culture. And so you see a, a movement in Machen and a kind of disillusionment with culture that, again, I think resonates more with some of the lost generation of American intellectuals, but, again, from a decidedly Christian kind, because Machen is clearly holding out hope for humanity, not in culture, but in what the church, in the gospel that the church proclaims. So let me conclude, then, today with a little reflection on uh, Christ and culture. Um, There are no... Okay. Okay. don't tempt me with a board if there's not any markers. Uh, I, have, I have the different... No, that's okay, Dave. Don't worry about it. Um, I, have the, I was just going to put up here... H. Richard Niebuhr wrote this classic book called Christ and Culture in 1951 where he lays out the five approaches to culture, Christ and culture throughout the history of Christianity, in effect. Um, and so at the one extreme is Christ against culture, and this is sort of symbolized by... or. or or instantiated by uh, fundamentalism and monasticism. This is an idea where Christianity and culture are at such odds that the way to reconcile them is just to avoid culture altogether and run away from it. At the other extreme, and I was going to put up a spectrum here, so Christ Christ against culture and then Christ of culture over here on the other side, and this is, um, this is represented by liberal Protestantism. There's a fundamental agreement between Christianity and culture. The life and teachings of Jesus are the, the highest achievement of humanity. And so there's this, this sort of progression throughout human history up to Christ. And Christianity is the greatest fulfillment of human aspirations. So this is the Christ of culture in, um, in Niebuhr's scheme. And then in between these, you have... Uh, um, different approaches. And so um, closest to the Christ of culture would, would be Christ above culture. And this is an idea sort of like um, the Christ of culture where Christ is the fulfillment of cultural a- aspirations, yet Christ is not merely the product of culture. This is the idea in some ways that grace completes nature um, or Christ completes culture. And and for Niebuhr, this was represented in Thomas Aquinas and Roman Catholicism, where, again, there's a continuity between grace and nature or between Christ and culture. But you need grace, ultimately, to get over the top all the way to Christ. So culture still needs grace. It's not complete in and of itself. And then somewhat over here in the uh, Christ against culture side, so if you have Christ of culture, Christ against Roman Catholicism, over here more toward this side would be Lutheranism or the Christ and culture in paradox, again, according to Niebuhr. And so this is more like the Christ against culture. This recognizes a tension between Christ and culture. Um, And so uh, Christ is um, in some ways not antithetical to culture, but Christ is not necessarily compatible with culture. Christians are commanded to participate 
in the institutions of this life, of this world. They cannot escape it, so fundamentalism or monasticism is not an option. On the other hand, though, it's not as if that these cultural achievements are going to issue in some sort of redemption or salvation or transformation or coming of the kingdom of God. Um, so the Christ and culture in paradox, according to this more Lutheran understanding. And then um, Niebuhr puts in the middle Christ, the transformer of culture, which would be the Reformed or Calvinist view. And this recognizes the depravity of humanity, and so therefore the, the, uh, the limitations of culture. But again, Christians are not allowed to escape it, and they don't merely endure the culture, but instead they c- can use Christianity and the church to convert culture or transform culture into something good, something valuable, maybe even something imperishable, something as imperishable as the kingdom of God. So those are the five options. Machen, in, this, um, in his essay, Christianity and Culture, that I have this quote from in 1912, lays out similar options. He doesn't have five, he has three. But he comes out pretty much in the Christ-transformer of culture mode, although the word that Machen uses is consecration. And he doesn't really get specific about what consecration of culture might look like. Um, And here I'm going to um, depart from Machen a little bit and go to one of his colleagues at Westminster, John Murray, to talk about what what consecration of culture might look like. And again, I'm not sure that Machen would necessarily have agreed with this understanding in 1912, but I do think that he may have agreed with it by the time of 1933, when he was very much um, rather pessimistic about uh, the history of Western civilization and where it was going. And there are two ideas that, that are important in Murray's um, understanding of consecration, which I think we can apply to consecration of culture. One of these is um, the idea of service to God, and another, another one is, um, I'm sorry, I think, it, I think I actually have their prayer and thanksgiving. Right. And, but compatible with these are the ideas of service and vocation and also... Um, uh, prayer and thanksgiving. So, um, for Murray, there's a biblical principle at stake in reflecting on Christ and culture that he, that he derives from Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. And Murray applies this to those who say that certain kinds of food or tobacco or alcohol, and one could extend that to cultural endeavors, are wicked. Um, And so Murray is arguing that on the basis of what Scripture teaches about the goodness of creation, the goodness of all uh, the world that God has created, we cannot prohibit certain things. The proper attitude, then, is to try to consecrate them or sanctify them. Um, and again, here Murray appeals to 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanct- sanctified through the word of God and prayer. So for that reason, Murray says that it's wrong to insist that Christians abstain from certain foods, certain drinks, certain cultural endeavors, uh, because it denies the goodness 
and creation uh, of uh, God and the goodness of his creation. Um, These things instead are to be received with thanksgiving by those who know and believe the truth. Um, Murray writes, Pietists say certain things are to be refused and scrupulously avoided. This would be the Christ against culture. Paul says nothing is to be refused. Pietists say the Christian witness is prejudiced when believers partake of certain things. Paul says that it is by those who believe and know the truth they are to be received with thanksgiving and that it was for that purpose God created them. Pietists imply that God's blessing cannot be invoked on the the use of certain things. Paul says that it is by prayer they are sanctified. Pietists say the word of God forbids the use of certain things. Paul says that it is by the word of God they are sanctified. Now, so everything is open to to people because, uh, because it's all part of God's good creation. But then Murray wants to modify this by saying that this does not lead to unbridled license. Even though nothing is unclean in and of itself, not every Christian has the knowledge and the faith to use all things. So not everyone will be able to use all forms of food or drink or cultural endeavors. For some, there will be liberty to use those things, and for others, their consciences will not bear it. Murray writes, there is not in every person the requisite knowledge or faith. Until understanding and faith have attained to the level of what is actually true, it is morally perilous for the person concerned to exercise the right and liberty which belong to that person in Christ Jesus. So, in other words, everyone has to go about their cultural activities with devotion to Christ. And then when they confront things that they believe are wicked, they need to restrain from those. But it doesn't necessarily mean that their understanding of what is always wicked is the same as everyone else's. So again, there are two components to consecration. One is pray before doing it and ask God's blessing upon it and receive it with thanksgiving. Um, And then in that light, as you are praying and, and receiving with thanksgiving, you are trying to consecrate it. Um, And here I think of the example of uh, Lucy Marsden. Uh, Lucy, formerly Camaray, the daughter of an OP minister, Ray Camaray, for many years in Vermont. She eventually married George Marsden, prominent historian, also grew up in the OPC. And Lucy would tell the story of her parents who would have cocktail hour pretty much every day, but to make it truly Christian, they would ask the Lord's blessing before they had their cocktail. So this is one way that you can sort of be cultured, but also be Christian about it. Um, and I, and I want, want to say in conclusion, I think there's one, um, one aspect here of, of Murray's line of thinking about consecration and, and doing everything with prayer and thanksgiving, while also recognizing a diversity of consciences um, among God's people, that consecration in this view, seems to be different from obedience. Um, in a lot of circles, reform circles, when you hear about reform world and life view, there's a sense that, there, that the Christian involvement in culture is part of the cultural mandate. So we're supposed to go out and subdue the earth. And this is, this is a command. It's a mandate. 
And everyone is supposed to be involved in this. And when you read some of Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism, you can also see that he talks about this is a holy duty for people to go out and subject all the world to Christ. And it doesn't seem to me that necessarily Murray's view of consecration is one that allows for that kind of um, subjection of the world and, and enforcement of the cultural mandate. It seems to me um, that, that consecration has more to do with taking what God has given us and using it for his honor and glory as much as possible, using it with praise and thanksgiving and using it to honor and glorify him, but not necessarily to have this sort of imposition of Christian rule on everything. Um, so it's instead offering up to God the, the things that we do rather than trying to enforce God upon everything. At least it seems to me that that's, that's much more synonymous with what consecration might mean as opposed to some sort of transformation or cultural um, mandate. And, and I, do, I do then wonder if this is, this is the position that Machen eventually arrived at over the course of his life as he thought about Christ and culture in the light of his own experience, both in World War and France during the war, but then also during his battles in the church wars of the 1920s, about which I'll say more. Um, and, um, and, I, and, and I do think it's possible then to see in Machen this progression or declension, whatever your view of it may be, away from a more transformational view in 1912 into a more subdued view where the church is really important to the prosecution of the kingdom of God and not necessarily cultural endeavor. Um, and so the work of reforming the church or starting a new church and starting a seminary that's going to produce pastors who are going to go out and proclaim the gospel becomes, in, in effect, Machen's way of um, engaging, um, not the culture, but in engaging the world and trying to establish the kingdom of God. So I will conclude there and take questions or comments if people have any. Drew. In the history of the OCC, did Machen's view of leaving, moving away from Mm -hmm. model. Did that play out in the history of the OCC, or did that get carried on? Um, I think it did actually. Um, it's it hasn't always it hasn't been the only message of the OPC, the only outlook um, because of the Dutch influence in the OPC, um, which is a different kind of cultural transformation model than the one that represented by McIntyre and Buswell in the Bible Presbyterian tradition. Um, but I think that was, there was some, sometimes a more robust reform world and life view, cultural transformation view coming out of those Dutch Calvinist circles. Um, and, but I still think that there was this uh, important uh, strand of this notion of the spirituality of the church and the idea that the church alone is the one that ministers God's word and, and brings about reconciliation between God and man, and that cultural endeavors may be useful and good, and, and may, but there's only so much that can be done with those things. And um, I think, too, if you look at uh, the OPC today, there's far more, I think, um, ambivalence about some of the, the cultural transformationalism that's out there. Certainly, there are members of the people in the OPC who espouse that, but I think 
per capita, there's more people who are also suspicious of it in some ways. And another important reason for this would be the Vossian tradition and um, of um, biblical theology, redemptive history, which, which I think um, also emphasizes the kind of spirituality of the church in important ways, but it's particularly the amillennial critique of postmillennialism. A lot of that, that cultural transformationalism has a very progressive postmillennial character to it. And amillennialism, which is very, very important to the history of the OPC, has always sort of stumbled over that kind of um, confident, um, progressive, somewhat even uh, militant understanding of the way sort of the kingdom of God is coming throughout everything. So, and again, I think the World War I and then eventually Depression and World War II would have made those sorts of, uh, that understanding of the millennium easier for people to, or more plausible than a post-millennial one. Yes? Of a, I mean, he gets it from Rookmacher uh, when, when he befriends Rookmacher in Europe, but then he also has the baggage, if you want to call it that, of McIntyre in that tradition as well. So they're somewhat fused together. Um, I don't know that... I mean, I think in, in the present day, those two strands oftentimes are on the same side, whether they get there theoretically the same way is another, is another matter. But, but Schaefer would represent maybe both, actually. What this is it, this has to be. One last question, then. I just wondered, do you know what motivated Hebrew to write this book? Was he reflecting on the two world wars? Um, no. I mean, he was... He had to give lectures in Texas, I think, and he just he decided to give lectures on Christ, Christ and culture. I mean, I th- I actually think the better context for it isn't war so much as um, Cold War, and um, there was a lot of reflection at the time on Christian higher education and a way of trying to prevent the secularization of higher education. Um, but there is very little self-reference, self-referential material in H. Richard who's different from Reinhold, if, if um, you need to know that. So, Anyway, let's um, then close with prayer. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to read more from Daryl Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you'd like to hear more about our other programs and read more from us, please visit reformedforum.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Reformed Forum. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.